scripture passage for us, for our sermon this morning. It comes from Luke 10, verse 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out the two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Rich, one of the pastors here at Risen. Um, If this is your first time visiting us, man, I want to welcome you to our church. I'm so glad uh, that you're here. And um, as Harry read, you know, right now we are going through the Gospel of Luke. And uh, the passage that Harry read is known as the story of the Good Samaritan. It's a famous story. Um, You've probably heard of it. Um, It's an amazing story about radical compassion and radical grace. And so today we're going to take a look at this story <clears throat> for, um, from three angles, all right? The three angles we're going to take a look at is one, the lawyer's question, and then two, Jesus' answer, and then three, the third way, all right? So first, the lawyer's question. Now, <clears throat> in Luke's gospel, if you, if you read the gospels, you Realize that there are always two groups of people coming to Jesus, coming to listen to him, coming to check him out. And the first group of listeners are the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law. And you see, in ancient Israel, the lawyers and the Pharisees and the scribes, they were the students of biblical law. That was uh, their constitution back in that day was the Old Testament. And so this, this first group of Pharisees and scribes and teachers of the law, uh, they, they represent this traditional path to moral conformity. Right? That's the first group. Now, the second group didn't observe the teachings of the Bible, either because they didn't grow up in that kind of family or uh, they left that traditional uh, morality of their family. 
or they just fundamentally disagree. And so this, this second group here represents this non-traditional, non-religious path of self-discovery. And if you think about it, to some degree, the so-called sort of culture wars that's uh, playing out in today's society, these are the same conflicting temperaments, the same conflicting instincts and impulses. You know, I don't think it's an understatement for me to say that our society is really deeply divided between these two perspectives. And not everyone falls in one category other or the other. Sometimes it's a, it's a mixed bag of traditionalism and non-traditionalism. But, but these are the two dominant worldviews that, that seemingly seems available for people. Like there's no other way to live. And if you study history, it's been like this actually from the beginning of time. And to most people in our society, you know, Christianity has sort of just become this traditional, sort of insulated, judgmental religion. I'm probably putting it nicely. But hear me out. True biblical Christian faith is actually very, very different. You see, on the one hand, the Christian faith does make certain proclamations. Right, things like the existence of God and sort of the moral brokenness in our world and in our hearts due to the power of sin. You know, Christianity makes a proclamation about divine forgiveness and resurrection power and resurrection hope. These are the objective proclamations that Jesus makes. But with that being said, when, when Christianity first arose in the world, it was actually not called a religion at all, you see. Because... <clears throat> It did not fit in the categories of typical religion back then. But at the same time, it also was an atheism. Let me explain, right? At times, it seemed like a traditional religion because uh, the Christians were worshiping God. There was ceremonial rites like baptism, and, and they prayed, and then there was teaching. But other times, it seemed very, very anti-religious, with its emphasis on grace over moral righteousness. Its emphasis on forgiveness over condemnation. And lots and lots of overlap and empathy and fellowship between differing communities and disagreeing thoughts. At other times, <clears throat> Christianity seemed like a social revolution with its concern for the poor concern for women and orphans and refugees and immigrants and the marginalized and those who are considered outsiders of religion. And so back in the day in the ancient church, Christianity was, was not considered as a typical religion. It was not considered atheism. It was considered completely different. It was in a category of its own, and it was actually called uh, this Latin word, tertium Quid, which means a third way, something entirely different. I think today, uh, this third way, this tertium quid, this, this, this intrinsic uh, recognition that Christianity is not a traditional religion or atheism, it's something entirely different, I think that's, that's gotten lost on us. It's because, you know, when you read the Gospels, and Luke especially, then you know that Jesus' approach to this cultural landscape 
is in stark contrast to traditional religion, actually. He makes this very, very clear by singling out traditional religion. Actually, many of Jesus' teachings is directed to this first group, right? Especially those who claim to know God, like the story of the centurion, the woman with the alabaster jar, the tax collector and Pharisee at the temple, and especially today's story, the good Samaritan. Why is that? Why does Jesus constantly call out traditionally religious folks? Well, in Luke chapter 18, the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the text tells us that Jesus told this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, this first group, and treated others with contempt. So, so here is the problem with traditional religion that Jesus has a problem with. Luke is saying that traditionally religious people can be so focused on a particular position that they can lose sight of their own shortcomings. That they can lose sight of their own brokennesses and they come off as if they are, like this uh, Pharisee, intrinsically morally superior, morally better than others, when in reality they are not righteous at all. Instead, only self-righteous. You see, we're all broken. We're all morally broken, spiritually broken, sexually broken, emotionally broken, relationally broken, including the person speaking. And we all need the radical grace and, and power and hope of Christ. The problem is, religious people who find themselves constantly in a position of moral superiority, uh, we can tend to forget this. And this is evidenced in the question that the lawyer brings to Jesus. In verse 25, the man asks, Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? In verse 26, Jesus responds, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus responds, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, <clears throat> we have to pay really close attention to this dialogue here. Jesus is not giving this man a word of encouragement. He's not saying, good job, you, you got it right. He's challenging him. He is confronting this man with an existential conundrum. The point Jesus is making is, friend, you might know the word of God and what you ought to do, but you should know that you will have just a difficult time as anyone in living it out. Go and do this. Give it a shot. Tell me how it goes. In other words, Jesus is saying it's not enough to know the right thing. That doesn't make you moral. That doesn't make you good. You must live it out. If you don't live it out, then, then you are no better than those you judge, than those you condemn. So by knowing the Bible better than the law expert, Jesus is trying to humble this man. 
He's trying to show the lawyer to see his own brokenness and his own inabilities and to see that he is no different than those he judges. He's, he's trying to challenge the man to, to recognize his own need for Jesus' compassion and kindness and for that to start to change his heart so that he can show kindness and compassion to others. But the lawyer knows what Jesus is getting at, and he's not, he's not willing to lose this debate, is he? Right? Jesus' first effort here is not enough to put him off his self-righteousness. The lawyer still believes he's right, or maybe he knows he's wrong, but he's unwilling to yield. The text tells us in verse 29, the lawyer wanted to justify himself. Right? He wanted to prove that he was right. He wanted to prove to Jesus that he was right, and Jesus, being only a mere teacher, was wrong. One Christian author, <clears throat> he writes on this passage, Though the lawyer felt the weight of Jesus' argument, the man pursued a way to defend himself. He counters, and who is my neighbor? The implication was clear. Okay, Jesus, yes, it's not enough to know that I must love my neighbors. I must actually love my neighbors. But who is my neighbor? Let's be realistic, Jesus. What are your expectations of me? In other words, the lawyer is trying to justify the scope of his compassion and keep his behavior, his self-righteousness, and moral superiority over others intact. I think this author just psychoanalyzed the lawyer. But friends, this happens to us too. Right? It's, it's very common for even true Christians to, to think we know everything, and slide into self-righteousness to look down at others and then justify how we live, right? All the while, not showing much grace and kindness and compassion. And, and then what starts to develop in the church is a culture that lacks personal responsibility and relational empathy. What, what begins to happen and, 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 and what you see in churches, is there are people who are trying to hold the world accountable without willing to be held accountable themselves. <clears throat> you know, this was actually one of the impetuses uh, for me uh, and Harry to plant Risen, to plant a different kind of church. You know, I was aware of the disdain that my friends had uh, for Christians. Um, and of course, when they would share their opinions with me, they'd be like, oh, yeah, we're not talking about you. <laughs> right? We're talking about other people, not you. Um, but a particular moment I want to share is at one point, one of my friends uh, who is gay, he shared with me, Rich, uh, man, I'm, I'm so shocked that, that we're still friends after you became a pastor. You know, that's what he said. And when I heard that, I was first sort of naively confused. You know, I, I can never imagine not, not being his friend. But, you know, then I realized when he said that, um, I was heartbroken. I realized that there was something so wrong with the church that people like my friend don't feel safe in the church. Or amongst Christians. Because either the church doesn't know how to, to talk about this or... The church isn't a safe place to talk about this. 
when, when it should actually be the complete reverse. If there is to be a safe place to talk about anything, it should be in church. And if you're here today, or, or if you're watching, um, I see that, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, some of y'all aren't here today, but if you're watching, if, you, if this is you, if you don't feel safe, if you don't feel seen, <clears throat> first, I want to publicly apologize. You know, we need to be better as a church. I need to be better as a pastor. And, and, and as Christians, we should grieve because something is really wrong. Christians, we need to look in the mirror and own some of the ways that we have really contributed to this kind of perception. Because when I read the Gospels, you know, there's something about Jesus that non-religious folk, people who feel like they are on the outside, that they could not, they could not keep away from Jesus. Jesus' grace and empathy was like a spiritual and supernatural magnet that attracted people in a graceless and merciless world. So, friend, if this is you, I just want to know that Jesus welcomes you in this church. I want you to know that I welcome you in this church. And I'm glad that you are here. And if you feel alone or if you feel unseen or unsafe, you know, my door is always open to you. I want you to know that you have a family here that loves you because if we can't do this, I, I don't know if we're doing anything right. Now, something we haven't explicitly <clears throat> addressed is you know, the Bible's teaching of a Christian marriage as being between a man and a woman. And I know that this is a source of, of great pain and great controversy. And I know that not everyone in this room or everyone uh, who is a part of our church agrees with this. And that's okay. Because... This is not a church where everyone has to be in the same place. And I'm not speaking as someone who has it all together this morning, and a sermon is, is really unfair for something like this because it's, it's a one-way conversation. The reality is that there are a lot of people with their own personal story. There are a lot of stories and questions that we all have. And so I would love for us to get together for coffee or for lunch and I would love to hear your story. I would love to hear your questions. With that being said, I want us to look at how Jesus answers this law expert. You know, Jesus understands that his, um, his discussion with the lawyer isn't really going anywhere. Uh, he's, not able to hum he's not able to humble him. So Jesus, Jesus takes a different, different route, different approach. He, he gives an illustration of a good Samaritan, right? He talks about how a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho where he was robbed, beaten, and left for dead. And at first, what happens? A religious person comes along, a Jewish priest, a religious leader. 
he comes along and he sees this wounded man and passes on by. And then the priest, uh, not a religious leader, but still a religious servant, he comes along and, and the sole responsibility of the priest were to mediate and take care of the people of God. Maybe this religious person will have some compassion on this wounded individual, but he passes him by on the other side also. And then a Samaritan comes along, and historically, Samaritans and Jewish people were enemies because Samaritans was part of the northern part of Israel that rebelled against King Solomon's lineage. So there was a civil war, there was a division, but they weren't just politically different. The Samaritans were also religiously different. They worshipped a different God. They lived by a different set of rules. So the Samaritans and the Jews <clears throat> were political and religious enemies. And yet, you know, the Samaritan comes along, so-called religious and political enemy of the Jews, and he is moved with compassion for this man. The text tells us that he goes to him, he's very thorough and disinfects the man with the wine he has for the journey and with oil he cleans his filth and bandages up his wounds. Three or four uh, commentators believe that the Samaritan must have not been prepared, and so he tore up his own clothes to bandage up this man. The Samaritan then sets the wounded man on his donkey and, and walks by him the entire way. He brings him to an inn and gives the innkeeper two weeks of stay and then tells him if there's anything else to put it on his head. You see, when the Jewish people are hearing this story from Jesus, they are being poked in their most sensitive spot. Their lack of kindness and compassion to their political and religious enemies. That's what's happening here. Jesus is throwing a grenade rebuke to these religious leaders. But the story is timeless. Human nature is timeless. You see, when it comes to kindness and compassion to religious, I wouldn't say enemies, but people who are different in religious belief or different in political belief, the church is supposed to be this, this good Samaritan. Christians are supposed to be this, this beacon, this par exemplar of Christ. And so Jesus comes along and he, he is challenging us, friends, right in the heart. And he's saying, Christian, how is your compassion and kindness to, your, to people who are politically and religiously different from you. Because the kingdom of God demands the radical upturning of this, this status quo kind of thinking, this insular, this, this tribalism, this dividing, this judgmentalism, this self-righteousness, such as the impossibility of a Samaritan loving his political and religious enemy. 
And after Jesus tells this story, he asks the lawyers, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to this man? And I love the lawyer's response. Um, this is a righteous lawyer. He doesn't try to deflect anymore. He doesn't try to justify anymore. He won't give Jesus the middle finger. He says, the one who showed him mercy. The one who showed him mercy. Which brings us to the last point, the third way. You know, <clears throat> when we listen to uh, the story of the Good Samaritan, it's supposed to be scandalous. I think today we've sort of, like, neutered this text, okay? <laughs> we don't understand what this text is really saying. But it's not scandalous just because it's politically and religiously charged. Here's why it's scandalous. It's because while those who claim to know God passed on by the wounded man, it was an outsider of the faith that lived the life that Jesus desired his people to live. That's why it's scandalous. You see, Jesus was trying to wake the lawyer up to the reality that was very different to how the lawyer saw himself. You see, actually, the reason why Jesus is identifying this, this beaten and half-dead person as a Jewish religious insider and the helper as a Samaritan non-religious outsider is that he is asking religious people to not imagine themselves as morally superior, but as those who need rescue. You know what Jesus is saying, friends? He's saying, you're not the ones who need help. You're the ones who need help. Downright scandalous to religious people. And in the same way, friends, you and I, we are to take tremendous heed here with Jesus for our own sake and for the sake of others. You know, when I was reading this text, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I spent, um, man, I spent a good amount rereading what I was writing because I was like, I need to make, make sure this is what Jesus is saying. Second time, like, this is what he's saying. Third time, okay, this is what he's saying, <laughs> right? Especially with, you know, the dream, you know, you know, things are up forever. So, but we need to listen to Jesus for our own sake and for the sake of the world, for the sake of others, for the sake of Jesus' reputation. For the sake and how we follow Jesus. For not to see ourselves as morally superior, but as a person who needs help desperate need for rescue. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5, Paul tells us that we are spiritually and yes morally dead in our sins. Like the wounded man in our story, you and I, we are attacked by the ferocity of sin's power. We are 
handicap of the love and the life that we should be living, we are spiritually dying on the road. But Jesus comes into our dangerous world. He comes down our path as the ultimate Samaritan. And though we are his enemies and we are constantly fighting against him, Jesus is still moved with compassion for our condition. Friends, on the cross, Jesus does what we can never do. He gives us a love and compassion we can never give. And in his death, Jesus takes the ultimate power of sin upon himself and, and at the greatest cost, at the, at the cost of his very own life, not at the cost of his resources or his time or his pride or the fear of whatever, how the world's going to go, but at the cost of his very own life. And as we place our faith in this powerful act of love, when we understand that, that without Jesus, without his grace, we're left for dead, when that grabs a hold of our hearts, when we get that we're in desperate need of spiritual rescue, it's going to knock you off your morals straight. And inside our heart, that same grace and love is is going to start to generate this supernatural kind of compassion and kindness to those who are religiously and politically oppressed. You know, when Harry and I got together to plant Risen, we said, you know what? <clears throat> we want to go for broke. We want to go for broke. And the Oxford Dictionary describes going for broke as risking everything in an all-out what is that effort? Well, simply put, it's to, it's to follow Jesus in every aspect of his life. There is going to be no corner of our faith and our personal life and our public life, our political life, that is going to be hands-off to Jesus. Going for broke means to live a life of radical, radical, Radical grace. It means giving Jesus no more excuses. It's going to be church can quit or bust. And I still feel that way. And I don't know how I could be a pastor without going for broke. And it's my prayer for this church that we would never, ever forget that line. That we would never get lost and caught up in our own worldview. But that we would go for broke. Let's pray. Gracious God, uh, we come before you and we come to this, this passage of the Good Samaritan. And it takes an honest unbiased, objective study to listen to what you are truly saying. And we confess and we repent that we have contributed so much to the division in our world, 
and to the political and religious animosity to the name of Christ. And so we ask that you would forgive us and that you would break and bring down these spiritual strongholds that, that prevent us from going for broke, from pursuing you, the third way of the gospel. And we ask that this church would be a safe place for those who think differently, for those who did not grow up in a church, for those who feel like they are on the outside. We would follow you, the ultimate Samaritan who have uh, saved us from spiritual brokenness and eternal death. Father, we're a young church. We've got a long way to go. But even now, would you, would, you, would you parent us well? Would you nurture us, sharpen us, and fill our cup, overflow our cup with your radical grace and radical mercy? And we pray this. We give you thanks. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.